Okay, so welcome to this, the second lecture for contract law this year. I want to start this lecture by going back to where I ended or concluded in the previous lecture, which was the puzzle of Euathlus and Protagoras. And I asked you to think about that puzzle before listening to the second lecture. So hopefully you've done that. And as I explained at the time, I think this is a useful puzzle in order to figure out how to engage in conditional reasoning and argumentation in contract law, even though the puzzle itself doesn't really have any particular bearing on modern substantive contract law. So if you'll recall from the case, we have Euathlis going to Protagoras looking for lessons in order to help him to become a lawyer. Euathlis doesn't have any money, so he agrees a contract with Protagoras stating that he'll only have to pay Protagoras for his lessons if and only if he wins his first case. Now, Euathlis takes the lessons, but then never becomes a lawyer. Protagoras is a little bit fed up with this situation, so he brings a case against Euathlis. He fixes it so that Euathlis cannot get another lawyer to represent him in the case, so Euathlis has to represent himself. So this means that this particular case, the dispute with Protagoras, is Euathlis's first case. And Protagoras, as a result, thinks that he has a pretty strong argument for thinking that he will be victorious no matter what the outcome of the case, that he will be paid no matter what the outcome of the case. And I also mentioned that Euathlis thinks that he also, he has a pretty good argument for thinking that he will be victorious no matter what the outcome of the case. So the challenge here is to construct the arguments on both sides. Why is Protagoras so confident and why is Euathlis so confident? So let me try to explain this. Think about it first from Protagoras' side. He knows he has this contract that states that if and only if Euathlis wins his first case, he'll be paid. So he brings the case against Euathlis, and he reasons as follows. If I win the case, that means that the court must have decided that I should be paid for the lessons. So if I win the case, I'll get my money. If I lose the case, that could only happen if Euathlis has won the case. And so if Euathlis has won the case, he's won his first case, and therefore he'll have to pay me under the terms of the contract. So no matter what the outcome, I will be paid. Contrast that then with Euathlis's perspective on it and Euathlis's arguments. Euathlis can reason like this. If I win the case, then that can only be because the court has decided that I don't have to pay Protagoras. And so by the judgment of the case, I won't have to pay. And if I lose the case then the term within the contract will kick in, stating that I only have to pay him if I win my first case, and so he doesn't have a good claim against me by the rule within the contract for payment. Now this is supposedly a paradox, because when you construct the arguments on both sides, they lead to opposing conclusions. And one of the things that logicians like to do is to figure out, is there a resolution to the paradox? Now we can get into that if you like, but I would just say initially that I think the reason why I think this is interesting, as I said, is because constructing the arguments on both sides gives you a good practice in how to construct the kinds of arguments that are going to feature in a lot of the legal reasoning and the legal cases that we discussed this semester. Because hopefully you can see on both sides they're constructing these kinds of conditional arguments. So Protagoras is saying, if I win the case, you Athos will have to pay me. If I lose the case... Euathlis will have to pay me because the contract term will kick in. Whereas Euathlis is saying, if I 
win the case, then I won't have to pay Protagoras. If I lose the case, I won't have to pay Protagoras by the term within the contract. So if you were able to construct those competing arguments, congratulations, that's really all I wanted you to get from this exercise. If you're interested in going into it in a little bit more depth and resolving the paradox, here are some suggestions or pointers for you. First, I'd say that there probably isn't a real paradox here, if you think about it in a bit more depth. And one of the reasons why there isn't a real paradox is because both parties assume that there are two there are two potentially governing legal rules, and in the real world that probably wouldn't be the case. It'd either be the case that the judgment of the court takes authority or the contract takes authority, not both. And the paradox only arises if you assume that both of those rules govern the case. I should also add that in the real world, it's quite possible that a court would say that you couldn't have a contract like this because the term is too uncertain or too paradoxical. They would identify the potential for a paradox there and say that you can't have a term like that. Maybe it's ruled out for a policy reason. That's something we'll discuss later in the semester, the kinds of terms that you can have within a contract. A court might also argue that there are other legal rules that govern this particular dispute. So, for example, there's a whole area of law known as restitution, which entitles you to payment for goods and services rendered, even if that isn't compliant with the terms and conditions of a contract. And restitution as an area of law crops up a couple of times in some of the cases that we're going to be discussing over the next couple of weeks. So I'll say no more about the paradox of Euathos and Protagoras. Hopefully that was kind of interesting to you and some of you engaged with that exercise. And I encourage you as well throughout the semester when I do pose these practical questions and exercises that you should engage with them. And engaging with them will really help you to succeed and do well in this course. So with that out of the way, I want to move really into the meat of this course, the first substantive set of topics. And I want to start by discussing something I'll call the basic rule of contract law. From that basic rule then, I want to extract a core element of contract law, which is the notion of an agreement as being foundational to the existence of a contract. And then from that, I'll discuss in a little bit more detail, what does the law think counts as an agreement? So there's three main topics on the agenda for the remainder of this lecture, the basic rule of contract law, the notion of agreement as foundational to contracts, and what the law thinks an agreement is. So let's start with the first of those topics, which is the basic rule of contract law. So as I mentioned the last day, legal rules can pretty much all be interpreted as setting up certain conditions that need to be satisfied in order for legal consequences to follow. And so what the basic rule of contract law does is it sets up a number of conditions that must be satisfied in order for a legally binding contract to come into existence. And so you can think about this as the rule for the formation of a legally binding contract, And in most textbooks and student-focused introductions to contract law, this is really the first topic that is discussed, the notion of the formation of a contract. So what is that basic rule of contract law? What are the conditions that need to be satisfied in order for a binding contract to come into existence? And there's five of them. And we're going to be going through each of these five conditions in some detail over the next few weeks. So the basic rule of contract law can be formulated roughly as follows. If there is an offer, and that offer is accepted, and if there is consideration provided for the offer, and there is an intention to create legal relations on both sides of the contract, and if any necessary formalities have been met, 
then there is a legally binding contract. Okay, so you have five conditions within this rule that need to be satisfied. There must be an offer, there must be acceptance, there must be consideration, there must be intention to create legal relations, and there must be compliance with any necessary formalities. Now that last condition, as we'll see later in the semester, is not essential to every single contract. Not every contract requires that certain formal conditions be met. And by formalities here, I really mean that the contract has to be evidenced in writing. That's sort of the main formalism or formality that's required in contract law. But that's clearly not essential to every contract. And indeed, many of the contracts that you enter into on a daily basis don't require compliance with that formality. But the other four elements are important. And if you look at the first two elements of the, the basic rule of contract law, that there must be an offer and that offer must be accepted, what those two conditions establish is that in order for a contract to come into existence, there must be agreement between the two sides to a contract. One party must make an offer and that offer must be accepted by the other side. So I mentioned this the last day, that agreement is the foundation of contract law. And although every contract is an agreement, not every agreement is a contract. So the other conditions that are specified in that basic rule of contract law establish additional conditions that need to be satisfied in order for an agreement to be a legally binding contract. And we'll talk about those as we go through the course, but I really want to focus in on the first two elements for the time being, this notion of offer and acceptance and the concept of an agreement. So that brings me then to the second main topic that I wanted to discuss today, which is the notion of agreement and how it is and why it is foundational to contract law. Now let's first just dwell on the concept of agreement itself. What does it mean for people to agree to something? And in many of the classic cases of contract law, this is defined or understood as a meeting of minds. So there is an agreement in contract law whenever two or more parties come together and their minds seem to join up with one another. So what, what that means in practice is that one party offers to, let's say, sell goods or services on certain terms. The other party agrees to purchase those goods and services on the same terms. And so the minds of both parties seem to mirror each other. They're both agreeing to the same thing. And when, when you have that mirroring of minds or meeting of minds, you have an agreement and you have the basis for a contract. Now, there's a famous passage from A Judgment, Smith versus Hughes. It's a case we'll discuss in a little bit more detail in a moment. So the actual facts of the case I'll describe to you very soon. But there's a, a passage within that judgment, a quote from it from one of the judges, Lord Justice Blackburn, that seems to set out this notion that you need this meeting of minds in order for there to be a binding contract. So let me now just read that passage from the judgment. And I'll be doing this frequently throughout the year. I'll be reading passages from case law. And you may wonder why I do this. And the reason why I do it is because, again, most of the foundational rules of contract law come from cases, many of them decided quite some time ago. And it is the passages within these judgments, what the judges actually wrote and said, that is legally binding. Now, I'm going to formulate and translate the rules of contract law in my lectures into a form that I think is readily understandable by you and that is copied in most of the textbooks about contract law. 
But ultimately, it's the words within the judgments that are really legally binding, not my translation of the rules. So that's one reason why I place a lot of emphasis in this court on the quotations and passages from actual legal cases. So that's enough by way of delay on what is the actual passage itself. So here's what Lord Justice Blackburn says in Smith v. Hughes. He says, I apprehend that if one of the parties intends to make a contract on one set of terms and the other intends to make a contract on another set of terms, or, as it is sometimes expressed, if the parties are not ad idem, there is no contract. So the bit of Latin within that quotation, the parties are not ad idem, there is no contract, that's capturing that notion that there must be a meeting of minds in order for there to be a binding contract. Now, as we'll see in a moment, Lord Justice Blackburn goes on to say something else in that judgment that adds a qualification to that idea. But nevertheless, what he's expressing there is the common view, the classical view, that in order for there to be a binding contract, there must be a meeting of minds, there must be an agreement. Now, before we go off and discuss some of the legal complications to this, to what counts as an agreement, it's worth reflecting for a moment on why it is that judges and contract law more generally seems to think that agreement is foundational to contract. Now, this might seem like common sense to you, that, well, of course, you can't have a contract unless there's an agreement. But as I mentioned previously in in the last lecture, it's important to take a theoretical perspective on contract law. You know, these rules were invented or constructed or adopted by people, and you've got to think about why did they construct, create, or adopt them? What was the rationale for doing so? So let me suggest that there are probably two rationales underlying the agreement concept or the notion that agreement is foundational to contract. One, I think, has to do with liberty and freedom of choice. So one of the things I emphasized in the first lecture is that contracts are legally unusual insofar as they involve a situation whereby you create and impose legal obligations upon yourself. We give people the power to form contracts and impose legal obligations upon themselves and ultimately, of course, their contracting partners. Now, that's an important power and it has serious consequences. So one thing that we might like to do is to ensure that people know what they're getting themselves into and that they really do consent to or assent to the terms and conditions of the contracts that are binding upon them. And that's what this agreement rule seems to respect. It seems to respect their capacity to freely choose the terms and conditions upon which they enter into a legally binding contract. So it's saying if they haven't consented to it, if they're not, their minds have not met, then they're not in agreement, there isn't a binding contract. So as you can see, that then one reason why we would have this rule is to respect liberty and freedom of choice. Now, as we'll see again throughout the semester, some judges seem to express a loyalty or fealty to this concept of freedom of choice throughout their judgments. Others are not so explicit. But I think it does lurk in the background here. Another reason why we might suggest that agreement is foundational to a contract has to do with some basic economic theory. And this kind of links into the market individualist theory of contract law that I discussed in the first lecture, the notion that the rules of contract law are designed and constructed in such ways that they protect freedom of choice, of course, but also the market efficiency of trades, of contracts. 
What does that actually mean? What is the market efficiency of a trade or a contract? So those of you who have studied economics may have come across this before, but for those of you who haven't, it's worth noting that the concept of efficiency to an economist does not necessarily gel with or line up with the concept of efficiency as it is ordinarily employed in language. So the everyday concept of efficiency is something like a low-cost, low-energy way of achieving a certain outcome. So we often talk, for example, about the energy efficiency of our refrigerators or something like that. For economists, efficiency has a different meaning. It actually uh, means something more like how welfare-enhancing or promoting a trade happens to be or a set of economic circumstances happen to be. I mean, so to give one of the classic definitions of efficiency in economics, a kind of Pareto definition of efficiency, a trade... An exchange is efficient if it leaves everyone better off and no one worse off. One of the core ideas in certainly classical economic theory, which had a big influence on the rules of contract in the 1800s, is that you want to promote efficient trades. And so one argument is that one way to do that is by ensuring that people are agreeing to trades on their own preferred terms and conditions. And to go into this in a little bit more depth, why is that efficiency enhancing or welfare enhancing? So oftentimes we use trite or simple scenarios or stories to explain this idea. So imagine that you are trying to purchase a car and you have a certain budget for a car. You're willing to spend up to, let's say, 1,500 euro for a car. Then let's say somebody else that you know is willing to trade a car they're willing to sell a car, and they're willing to accept a price as low as €1,000. Any trade between the two of you, between 1000 and 1500 would be efficiency-enhancing, enha- would be efficient. Okay, so let's say you, man- you traded the car at €1,250 Euro in between the two prices. That would mean that the person who is selling the car has benefited by 250 euro above their minimum price and you have purchased a car as well for 250 less than your maximum price so that's an an efficient trade and as i say any trade between 1000 and 1500 would be efficient it's just that the benefits of the trade would be differentially distributed so one argument you typically get here is that in order to get efficient trades you have to leave individuals decide for themselves the terms and conditions in which they are willing to enter into a binding contract because individuals themselves know how much they're willing to spend and how much they're willing to accept. So they know from their own perspective what would be welfare promoting or enhancing. And so if you leave them to decide the terms and conditions of the agreement between themselves, they will come up with an efficient solution. And so that might be another reason why agreement is foundational to contract law if you think about it in terms of this kind of market efficiency theory. Now, I'm not saying that either of those explanations of the agreement rule is watertight, but I do think that it helps. they help to shed some light on why agreement is foundational con- to contract. There's one other preliminary thing that I want to mention before I get into the actual rules of offer and acceptance, which is how contract defines or approaches the notion of agreement. And that is, how exactly do we determine that an agreement has been reached? I mentioned earlier that an agreement is understood 
as a meeting of minds, when the parties are ad idem. But how can you tell whether their minds have met? I mean, we can't actually climb inside one another's minds and figure out what we're really thinking. This is one of the fundamental problems of the human condition, that the subjective realm, what you as an individual think about the world, your intentions, your desires, are not perfectly transparent to other people. Other people can only read it off your behavior and your speech and so forth. And so judges face this problem all the time when it comes to determining whether an agreement has been reached between two or more parties. They can't clamber inside the mind of the people before them. So what do they do? Well, what they typically do is that they adopt an objective test of agreement. And as we'll see again throughout the semester when we look at different areas of contract law, objective tests for agreement and for the terms and conditions of agreements are very common in law. And the gist of these objective tests is imagine if somebody was standing to the side of two people who are negotiating a contract and watching everything that they say and do when they're negotiating the contract. Put yourself in the shoes of that person and what would they infer from the behavior of the parties? Would they determine that the parties had reached an agreement? And on what terms and conditions would they believe that the parties reached an agreement? So one classic case that illustrates this objective test for agreement is the aforementioned case of Smith v. Hughes, which is very commonly one of the first cases that's discussed in a course on contract law. There's an English case, it's Queen's Bench decision from 1871. You can get the citation and details of the case in the class notes. And the basic facts of the case are as follows. You have a racehorse trainer called Hughes, who is trying to purchase some oats from Smith. And he's going to use these oats as feed for his racehorses. Now, they both agree that Smith is going to supply the oats to Hughes, but it turns out that there's a disagreement, or at least a misunderstanding between the two parties, about what kinds of oats are being traded. So Hughes believes that he's going to get old oats because these are the ones that are appropriate for racehorses. Whereas Smith believes that he is selling green new oats to Hughes. Now when Hughes takes delivery of the oats, he refuses to pay on the grounds that he did not agree to purchase green oats. So the contract must be void because there was no agreement for this. However, when they look into the facts of the case, the court notices that Hughes had actually been provided with a sample of the oats in advance. And that sample of oats appears to have consisted entirely in new oats, new green oats. So knowing that Smith had received these, this sample of oats, and knowing as well that the parties appear to have agreed a supply contract, what would a third party standing to the side of the negotiation decide? Would they agree that this had been a contract for old oats or a contract for new oats? So that's the question that's put before the court, and the court decide that it must be a contract for new oats. Because the sample was given, any reasonable third party would have determined that this was an agreement for new oats and not for old oats, as Hughes seemed to believe. So Hughes' subjective interpretation of the terms and conditions of the agreement was not reasonable, not something that a third party would have assented to or agreed with, and so it must be a contract for new oats. And so that's uh, an illustration of this objective test for agreement.
So we can actually go back to the quotation that I previously took from the judgment of Lord Justice Blackburn in this case to illustrate this idea. And I quoted you only half of the passage that's relevant here. So if we go back, what Blackburn says is, I apprehend that if one of the parties intends to make a contract on one set of terms and the other intends to make a contract on another set of terms, or, as it is sometimes expressed, if the parties are not ad idem, there is no contract. Now, on the face of it, it seems that that's the circumstance that we have in this case. Hughes thinks it's a contract for old oats. Smith thinks it's a contract for new oats. There's different terms and conditions. But Blackburn goes on in that passage to say, there is no contract unless the circumstances are such as to preclude one of the parties from denying that he has agreed to the terms of the other. And so what Blackburn says is because the sample was provided to Hughes in advance, he cannot deny that he has agreed to purchase new oats. Okay, so that's enough about racehorses and oats, but that's an illustration of this objective test for agreement in action. Now we're not quite done. The last thing I wanted to discuss in this lecture is how the law understands agreement. And one thing that comes up in the case law is that the courts take a somewhat formalized approach to understanding what an agreement is. They they specify that a certain procedure needs to be followed in order for there to be an agreement. In particular, they say that there must be an offer made by one party to either sell or purchase goods and services on specific terms, and that offer must be accepted by the other party. And that gives us the first two conditions within the basic rule of contract law that I mentioned earlier on, which is that in order for there to be a binding contract, there must be an offer and there must be an acceptance. And each of those conditions breaks down into a sub-rule of contract law. And we're going to be discussing the rules of offer and the rules of acceptance over the next couple of weeks. So let's start then with the, the offer rule and what that is. And then we'll see the acceptance rule is essentially the mirror image of the offer rule. So the offer rule states that if there is a clear statement by one party, known in law as the offeror, to another party, the offeree, showing a willingness to be legally bound by specific contractual terms, then there is a legally binding contract as soon as those terms are accepted by the offeree. So an offer in contract is a clear statement, actually more correctly we might say a representation, by one party to another, stating a willingness to be legally bound by specific contractual terms. And if you don't have an offer, and if you don't have an acceptance, you don't have an agreement. And the big question for us going forward is, under what conditions is there an offer, and under what conditions is there an agreement? Or to put it another way, what are the possible ways in which there can fail to be an offer, and what are the possible ways in which there can fail to be an acceptance? And addressing those different scenarios really becomes key to understanding this first element of contract law, the notion of agreement. And so we'll go into the rules on offer in the next lecture in more detail, and we'll look at the various ways in which there can fail to be an offer, and that will shed light on what an offer really is from the perspective of contract law.